Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be back with you. I just say real quick, as I look at you, I'm going to miss you guys. So I know your transition. You bless our church so much. Thank you for making this an intergenerational church. Thank you for loving our students. Praying for you during exams. For me, I always got stressed because I had to learn entire courses that I had blown off all semester. So that I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, and special thanks to uh, Tim uh, Brandon for sharing the message last week. Melena testifying that beautiful story that she shared. Um, and and I, I stress this, I said this first service too, that this isn't just an opportunity for me to be with my son over the weekend. I appreciate that. But I love hearing our shepherds' voices. I love hearing their visions as they share that. And, and I, I said this to Tim um, uh, last week. I, I really do believe that was one of the most important messages I think I've ever heard especially for this church. If you did not hear uh, the message uh, last week, I encourage you to get online and do that, especially if you're new to this church and you want to hear what it is that God has been doing in this community. It's about God, but how has God shaped this community? How has God driven this community? I'm going to go back to that sermon again and again. So thank you for all of our shepherds in the way that you serve in visible and in invisible ways. Uh, but I appreciate uh, Tim very much for, uh, for, for leading us in that way. So if you've been here, you know we're in this series where we're looking at this question, so what? And we celebrate, we do this all the time, especially this time of year, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I like to remind people again and again, I can still say Happy Easter. It is a season, not just a day. Uh, there is a season in the rhythm of paying attention collectively to the life of Jesus. The church has said, I'm, we're going to rhythm ourselves, not by Hallmark or uh, by, uh, you know, whatever calendar is out there. We're going to kind of rhythm our corporate life loosely around the life of Jesus. And, and we're in that season. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We're asking the question, does it matter to us right here in the day in and day out? The last several weeks, we spent some time focusing on Acts chapter 2. And I think that that's a kind of a a picture of the story and the message that the early church would preach. And you have lots of them in the book of Acts, but the comprehensive example of a message that drove the early Christian community was Acts chapter 2, and we looked at that. This week, we're going to be fast-forwarding a few chapters. Here's a way to think about it. I'm not actually picking the text we're doing. We're looking through the book of Acts. We're looking at snapshots, not the whole book, but snapshots of what resurrection looked like in the early community. Uh, but the church early on put together uh, a, a rhythm of readings for this season. So I'm, I'm following that, and I think it's kind of cool to submit to that rhythm and beauty. What you find yourself, you've got your devices or your, or your Bibles that you're going to read with, we're going to be in Acts 7, but I want to get you to where we were. We're in Acts 2, which celebrates the, the preaching of the gospel for the first time, the birth of the early Christian community And of the course of those last several chapters, the church grows. 3,000 the first time, there's another 2,000, they keep growing. I know that doesn't happen anywhere else, especially a 100-year-old church, but here's the thing. When groups grow, sometimes conflict arises. I know that never happens here, but sometimes we add people, it creates some conflict. And so we see the birth of the early Christian community, but there's some conflict and tension that rises up. And sometimes it's over the most simple and mundane things. And back in chapter 6, what happens is the apostles and the early spiritual leaders uh, realize they're getting pulled aside into administrative details. Not that they're not important, but they were called, in their words, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. 
That was their focus. And so they said, what we want to do is we want to set aside seven men. They're going to help distribute food to the poor because that's an important thing to do. But we want to focus on prayer and ministry of the word and let somebody do it. I think it's interesting in chapter 6, this is the way they described those people they set aside for this administrative tax. They said, choose seven men that are full of the spirit and wisdom. It's powerful to me. You would just think they would say it's administrative task, wisdom. No, here's the beautiful thing. Do you understand the Holy Spirit inspires every gift in the church? It's not just the people that get up and you see visibly. It's not just the people that preach and teach that have the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is inspired, administrative people to administrate. And I say, thank God for that. If anybody knows me, you need that. And so that's what these people are. And one of them is a man named Stephen. And throughout chapter 6, he is described as a man who has wisdom, who is full of grace, and has the power of the Holy Spirit on him. And it says, in fact, even as he's administrating around tables, he's also doing powerful wonders and signs because the Holy Spirit is empowering him to enact resurrection in their community. And the problem is, some religious people, some religious Jewish leaders didn't like that because he was attaching Jesus' name to everything that was going on. And so what you find is in chapter 6, they trump up charges in a kangaroo court <laughs> to haul him into court under false charges and, and arrest him and put him on trial for his life. In the beginning of chapter 7, you can read it sometime, his defense isn't really a defense at all. He tells the story of the Jewish faith, and he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he talks about Moses, and he has two themes to it. First of all, God isn't stuck in a building, <laughs> and the temple is now mediated through Jesus himself and his people. It's not about a building, but his second warning, and we'll pick it up at the end where he gets to this. His second warning is be careful that you don't miss what God is doing. And he'll speak some pretty, some pretty stern words to the Jewish people here, uh, the leaders, Jewish leaders here. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, we're in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 51. This is the word of the Lord. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the seers were asking a question about calling. What is it that we are all called to? How do we live out this life that we're invited into? And I, I recognize that we've been asking questions of calling and future and direction for a long time. We start that way, don't we? You remember anybody ever asking you when you were a little kid, 
what do you want to be when you grow up? You remember answering those questions, right? I don't know if you do it. You do it at Sunshine School, don't you? I mean, I know, uh, I remember the one that sticks with me is our daughter. And, and when we had our Sunshine School in Lubbock, they would go across the podium area and they graduated and they would say, this is what we want to be. And I remember our daughter said she wanted to be a ballerina and a baby doctor. <laughs> that's great. She wants to be a performer and a pediatrician. I just think that's really cool. She is now graduated and she is a musician and a minister. So it is still kind of one of those mixes, right? And if you ask these questions, you often hear some of the same things, right? You'll hear, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter, whatever the case may be. My favorite example of the answer of this question was a guy named Jamie. He was seven years old. This is a picture of what he drew at school, and you can kind of track it. He said, when I was, when I was three years old, I wanted to be a dad. Pretty interesting. For three years old, I wanted to be a dad. And then four, he said, I wanted to be, and you know, I almost need my wife to interpret this, uh, a toy designer is what that says up there if you look at it real quickly. And then uh, when I was five, I, I want to be a video game maker. But this is what I love. When I'm five and, a, five and a half, now he knows what he wants to be. I want to be a ninja chef. Isn't that awesome? Now check it out. This is my favorite part of it. He actually has his week scheduled out. Did you see this? Monday through Thursday, I'm a chef. Friday, I'm a ninja. <laughs> Saturday and Sunday, I'm off because ninjas got to rest. I mean, this is great, isn't it? We have this sense from early on that we're supposed to be something. We're, we're to grow up into something. And I love these early chapters, especially the book of Acts, is asking the question, what are we going to be? What are we going to look like when we grow up in Christ? What are we going to look like when we grow into the significance, the so what of the resurrection? What are we going to do with this? Now, here's the thing. We can talk about it big picture, and, and Tim did it so powerfully. We're called not to be good people, but transform people. I'm just going to hold on to that. You're going to hear that a lot. I think that was just anointed, that language he gave. But you, the other thing, too, Jesus gives us a really specific role. In, in fact, in the book of Acts, we'll actually come back on the day that this is referring to and pick up Acts chapter 1. But in the beginning of the book of Acts, a lot of scholars will say Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is actually the thesis statement that Jesus gives of the entire book. Here's how it goes. The disciples of Jesus say, it's time, isn't it? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father is set by his own authority. We still try to figure out when Jesus is coming back and all that. But he says, not for, dates not for you to know. But, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And here's your role. You ready for it? You will be my what? You will be my witnesses. That's your job. That's why when we put that picture up, we don't have it now, but we put the picture up of our discipleship pathway and, and how do we live into the purpose of disciples who make disciples. The last movement on that kind of circular movement is living out to change the world. And one of the things we say, and I'll say this again and again, our invitation to live out is to live out as witnesses in life and word, the resurrection of Jesus. And what's so powerful about this passage here in Acts chapter 7 is you have the example of what we are told is the first Christian martyr. Jesus was kind of that, but he didn't stay dead. So this is the first Christian martyr after the resurrection of Jesus in all of Christian history. And maybe a lot of you know this, maybe some of you don't, but the word in Greek, martyr, actually means witness. And so what we find here in this chapter, just like Acts chapter 2, is kind of the paradigm. It's kind of the example of Christian preaching. I think Acts chapter 7 is the example of our job. 
Now, that doesn't mean we all have to die. But I think if we pay attention to the way that Stephen lives as a witness in this moment, we can do this even when we live. Does that make sense? We're given an opportunity to say, how can my life matter in a way that has an impact, that has a ripple effect across time? And so here's the way I want to think about it. I want to look at this little section in Acts 7. It's like three windows. We're going to look into three windows of what witness looks like. And really the last two are, are what it means to, to be a witness and do it. But the first one is as much a posture as anything else is the attitude. What I see in this first window is that you see Stephen is giving us a reminder uh, that, that there are two sides to history and heritage. Have you ever thought about it? There are two sides to history and heritage. We have histories of all sorts of things. We have histories of our country. We have histories of our churches. We have history of our families. But it's really important to recognize there are always two sides. To any history of any community, there will be a healthy side and an unhealthy side. There will be a good side and a bad side. There will be a beautiful side and there will usually be an ugly side. And one of the things I love about Stephen as a witness is he owns the ugly in the, Christian, in the uh, Jewish story at this point. And he embraces what is good. You might see it this way. I think it's in verse 51 where he says to them, he gets to the point of conviction and he says, you are just like, listen to this one word's important, you are just like your ancestors. Because you're rejecting the one God has appointed to be the one who is delivering it. You're rejecting Jesus and when you do that, you are like your ancestors. Why am I pointing out that one word, your? Here's what's interesting to me. Six times, in this little chapter here, six times, he talks about ancestors. You know what he says every other time? He says, our ancestors. Our ancestors. Our forefathers. And he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Moses. And he talks about these people who weren't perfect, but they obeyed as best they could. They followed. They kept following. They stumbled and followed. They'd get up and they'd follow more. And he said, there's a whole part of our heritage in the Old Testament of faithful, broken, imperfect people trying to follow the voice of God. But he said, here's the warning. There's also darkness. There's an ugliness to the Old Testament story. And there are all sorts of people who kept deciding to do it their own way. And they rejected God's way and they would do it their own way. They would do it their own way. And they kept missing out on the deliverance and the power and the wonder that God intended for them. And when he gets to the convicting part of his message, he said, you're like your ancestor. You're choosing the bad side of the story. Before we get to the practices of witnessing, I think it's really important to start with this attitude of a witness that says, how, how refreshing would it be in the world today as Christians to start with humility and own that our story has ugliness in it in Christian history, doesn't it? Let's be honest. Christians have done some really stupid things, supposedly in the name of Jesus, and it's not. Can we just admit that and say we've got some your ancestor in our story too? Now, that's true with the big picture of Christianity. Let's be honest. That's true with any Christian heritage or fellowship too. I was reminded of this Two weeks ago, I was in Indianapolis, and I was there for a discipleship conference. And my friend Jim, who is a pastor and a church leader in a different fellowship in, in California. And in California, Church of Christ are pretty small. And he'd heard of us, but he didn't know a lot about us. And so he asked me, can you tell me a little bit about your heritage? I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to be a faithful witness here. I'm going to start, because I like finishing positive, I'm going to start with the ugly. I'm going to say, I'm going to admit this, that, that when our heritage started, it started as a unity movement, but we have to own the irony 
of our heritage that started as a unity movement that fragmented into three different fellowships and then within that splintered all over the place. So from Stone Campbell's unity movement back in the 1800s, we got Christian churches, churches of Christ, and disciples of Christ. And then if you've ever seen a book on churches of Christ especially, you've got to kind of flip through it and they've got all these little subtitles and tabs because we divide over all sorts of things. I also told him, I said, I'm going to own this too. Sometimes in our heritage, listen to me, by the way, I love my heritage. We're going to get to the positive part. I love my heritage, but I'm going to own it. We sometimes have not been the best Christian neighbors. I still remember a friend of mine that talked about when his college ministry went down to Florida over spring break to witness to non-Christians on the beach. And he said, what drove me nuts is all the Church of Christ people were converting us, trying to convert us in the hotel. Can we, just, can we just weep over that for a moment? Look, we may disagree about certain things, but there was a whole beach full of people who didn't know Jesus and were converting Christians. I want to say, can we just say, hey, I'm going to own that. And then we're not the only ones that do that. I'm going to own that that's our ancestry, but I'm going to stay there. Now, here's the beautiful thing. I said, let me tell you about our heritage that I love. We got these guys, Stone and Campbell, who were committed to being Christians in unity and focus on the core of the gospel. And I said, we've got documents a lot of times we've never read or heard. And there's this wonderful document called the Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. Have you ever heard of this before? Barton Stone wrote it. It was a group of people, they started out as Presbyterians, Scottish Presbyterians, and they said, you know what? We're tired of dividing over against other Christians. We just want to be part of the body of Christ. And so it's this tongue-in-cheek thing where they decide as a group to die, and they write it out as a legal document. It's really funny, but it's really beautiful. And so the first line is, we decide, and we, we hereby affirm that we are going to die, and listen to this language, sink into to union with the larger body of Christ. That's our story. That's our heritage. Those are my ancestors, and I love it. We got a guy named Alexander Campbell who wrote the Declaration and Address, and you'll find language in there where we get some of the early mantras of the movement that became Churches of Christ, where it says, in essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty, freedom. And in all things, charity or love. Haven't always done a great job of that last one, but that's a beautiful vision, is it not? And I said, that's where we came from, and those are my ancestors, and I love it. And I love the language that we had in the early parts of the Restoration Movement that said, we just want to be Christians only, not the only Christians. Agree? Sometimes we've forgotten the second part. of it. We're just going to be Christians only, that's it. But we're not the only Christians. We don't think we're the only ones. And that's a beautiful part of our heritage. So what if part of Christian witness is just owning the brokenness, say, this is who we are. By the way, you don't just have to do that corporately. We do it individually. I'm a mess, and you know it. Here's where I start. But you know what? I'm going to lean into the good. I'm going to lean into the best. And that's our invitation. By the way, there was a guy that gave a great example of practicing what I call pre-evangelism. I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago in a different context. A guy named Donald Miller writes a book, Blue Like Jazz. I don't know if you heard about this before, but he was working in a campus ministry some years ago, a place called Reed College. I don't, I don't know where that is. But he said one of the things that was distinctive about Reed is they had one day of the year on the college campus where they had this huge party, and even the administration let them do whatever they want. So you can kind of imagine what was going on, right? They're just crazy. Let them do it. Here's the thing. You could also imagine some of the stupid things Christians did on days like that. But they go down and judge them, and they preach at them, and all that kind of stuff. So they said, let's do something different. And they set up what they called a confession booth. So follow me on this. So they had a confession booth right on campus in the middle of the craziest party of the year. 
And they thought, you know, the, you know people are going to come in just to give them a hard time or laugh. They'll drunk in there or whatever. They'll pop in. And they're expecting to sit down and confess their sins. But what happened when they sat down, the campus ministry said, we're going to confess the sins of the church and Christians to you. I want to give you an example of some of the things they said. We would confess that as followers of Jesus, we have not always been very loving. We've been bitter, and for that we're sorry. We will apologize for the crusades, for televangelists, for neglecting the poor and the lonely, and we will ask them to forgive us. And we will tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented Jesus on this campus. We will tell people who come into the booth that Jesus actually loves them. How about that as an attitude of witness? We start with humility. We own our brokenness, but we lean into what is most deeply true. This Jesus guy is real, and he transforms lives. What do we just start with this posture of humility and recognize there's two sides of history. Let's lean into the best part of that. But what does it look like to witness? The second window of witness I look at, he just shares the vision that he has. He shares a vision that the Holy Spirit of God gave him. And that's all it means to be a witness. You share what you see, right? Here's a way to think about this. I've said it before, and I promise I'll say this again and again. I want this to kind of be rooted, in it, especially when we think about that live-out movement of our discipleship pathway. God has given us a role, and once we understand the role of being a witness, it sets us free from all the other roles that people have tried to tell us is our job when it's not. Follow me on this. I've said it before, let's say it again. It is not my job or yours, when you think about the metaphor of the courtroom, it is not our job to be the judges. That's not our job. That role is taken, the Father has it, and he says he's trusted all judgment to the Son, and I trust his judgment a whole lot more than mine. Secondly, it is not our job to be prosecutors. Did you know the word for the devil in the Greek literally means the accuser? He's got that job covered. If you haven't hung around him at all, just trust me, he will tear you up by lying to you about who you are. He's the accuser. It's not our job to go tell the world all the ways they're wrong. By the way, I was thinking of this in between first and second service. There's, there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit plays a little bit of that role, but it is to give life, not to condemn. Jesus does say the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and the right way to go, righteousness and judgment. But I'm going to let him be the convictor. And I'm going to let the accuser be the accuser. Lastly, we are, it's not our job to be defense attorneys either. We got a really good one, I'm telling you. He's never lost a case to anyone who submitted their lives to him. Here's what we have to do. What we get to do, we get to be witnesses. And I grew up thinking I had to go read a bunch of books about Christian Evanses and I had to memorize all this stuff. No, what does a witness do in a courtroom, guys? They tell the truth about what? All the stuff they don't know? All the questions they can't ask? No, what do they tell the truth about? What they know, what they've seen, what they've experienced. And here's the power. You don't even prepare. Look, I'm an attorney. You don't just kind of make up being a witness. A good attorney will prepare you to be a witness. The Holy Spirit prepared him to be a witness. It says, full of the Holy Spirit, he saw a vision where the thin place between heaven and earth just disappeared. And he could see what was most real. You get me on that? He sees what is most real. What a powerful vision for him. It was a personal revelation to Stephen. Here's what God will do. It says, what, is it, what it describes it? 
Verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit. He said, I see. What is he doing? Witness. I'm telling you what I see. I see heaven open. And the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite word for himself, standing on the right hand of God. Son of Man is this vision from Daniel, the book of Daniel, where the authority, power that God appoints is going to sit down next to God and he's going to rule over all of the craziness that's going on in the world. And in this moment, picture this. What revelation did Stephen need from Jesus? He's in the middle of a kangaroo court that is faking justice isn't going to kill him. And then all of a sudden, the mist, the fog goes away and he sees clearly what is real. He sees the heavenly court and he sees what God thinks about him. And that's true no matter what is going on right here. Does that make sense? He's not looking up into clouds. What he's seeing is, uh, I love the image one gives. Imagine standing on a mountaintop and the cloud kind of covers everything. And all of a sudden the cloud goes away. You can see what, listen to me, what is already there. God is here. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of God. It's already true, but every now and then God gives us glimpses to this. And Stephen says, I'm just going to talk about that. I see this picture. By the way, Scholars will debate about why is he standing here. If you know anything in the New Testament imagery, most of the time in the New Testament, he's seated at the right hand of God. Twice in the book of Luke, twice in the book of Acts, Ephesians, Colossians, um, three times in Hebrews. Throughout the New Testament, he's seated. Why is he standing here? Short answer, I don't know, but there was something Stephen needed in that revelation of Jesus. Perhaps it was as they are killing him and he's going to go into eternity. You see the welcome arms of Jesus. What did he pray? Jesus received my spirit. Jesus is ready to do that. Or perhaps he's standing in his defense when no one else would. Either way, what you see in that moment is what is most imminently real. And I'm telling you, that's what it means to be a witness. And it may not be that grand or powerful for you, but God will give you a vision of something. You will see Jesus in some way, and that's what you share. And God will give you the opportunity to do it. I was talking to a friend this past week told you before, you know, we came from Nashville. There was that tragedy that happened in Nashville a few weeks ago. My friend's daughter-in-law works at the school, Covenant School in Nashville. And he told me this story. It's a powerful story. It reminds me of this text. I have shared it to you. Some of the kids were out on the playground. We'll, we'll call her the attacker, walked by the playground and just walked right by. Somebody came up to one of the little girls on the playground and said, did she see you when she came by? She said, no. There was a bubble around the playground. And I saw angels there. I don't know what you do with that, but I'm just saying, the Holy Spirit of God does things like that throughout Scripture. You may want to write it off. Elisha had the same experience when an army came to attack them. And he said, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And he saw some protection there. Now, I don't know what to do with the fact that there wasn't protection in other places. And Stephen does die here. But I know God is faithful in all of that. And whether it's a grand story like that, or maybe it's a personal story for you, God will let you see something about Jesus that somebody needs to hear. That's your job. Isn't that beautiful? You just share what you already saw. And then the last window here, the last window even beyond words, is simply a practice of extraordinary love. When he is being brutalized and attacked, did you notice Stephen's prayer? Did you catch his prayer? We hear the teachings of Jesus, love your enemies, but we see it practiced in this moment in staggering ways. What made this pop for me, I, I was studying this text and there was one historian that talked about up until this moment, there were lots of Jewish people who died as martyrs. We know this, right? In fact, if you want to hear some of the stories, they're really powerful, gripping stories. 
in between the Old and New Testament, we have some writings called the Apocrypha, which are not scripture, but they were also, they were honored as, as meaningful books of history. And a couple of them are First and Second Maccabees. And in, the te- in between the Old and New Testament, Maccabees talks about these people who were martyrs for the faith. Now listen to me. Here's the thing. There were two things that characterized all of these stories, all of these martyrs. Because they were attacked in a bunch of different ways. Remember, they were, they were called similarly to denounce the one God. They were also asked to do stupid stuff like to violate the law. So they were supposed to eat pork. By the way, quickly, can we just say thank God that we're after Jesus now, right? Because I love me some bacon, just saying. But they, so they would, they, would, they would say, do these things that would break the law or whatever. And they stood up and they refused to do it. And there were two things that characterized them. Number one was great statement of faith. Now listen to me. The second was they would very specifically condemn and, um, and call for the torment of the people that were killing them, <laughs> right? They would condemn them. They would say, here, you're going to get brutal. They would just throw out condemnation. Now, here's what all the historians of Christianity say. From this moment on, is the first Christian martyr. From this moment on, that is not what Christian martyrdom ever looked like. There's no example of it. Oh, yes, there's a great statement of faith. But do you see Stephen has some hard words, but do you see him throwing condemnation on them, calling down for God's torment? No, what did he pray? God, do not hold this sin against them. Listen to me. The last words on Stephen's lips were words of forgiveness. How about that as a statement of Christian witness? The last words on his lips statement. What an extraordinary act of love. By the way, it's not rocket science here, but think about this with me. Where did Stephen learn that prayer? In fact, if you look the whole story, there is detail after detail we don't have time to get into that mirrors Stephen's death with the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. What does Stephen say? I trust you so much. I saw that happen. Jesus received my spirit. And then his prayer, what did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And while they are brutalizing him, Stephen says with his last words, God, don't hold the sin against them. What a powerful act of extraordinary love. That's why what Tim talked about last week is so important. There is no greater witness in the Christian life than transformed lives. That's what gets through to people. So could it be that simple? What does it mean to be a witness? To come with humility and honesty? To simply share what you've seen and practice increasingly extraordinary love? Could it be that simple? We share what we see. We practice extraordinary love. I want to end with this. Not a long thing like Tim was able to do last week. I just want to give you two stories from the last two weeks of people in our church that have shown me what both of those mean. Living extraordinary love and just sharing their vision of Jesus. The first, the lady next to me doesn't know, she gave me. By the way, just for a moment, can we thank God for the interpreters here who bring language to life? I love you. I've got two hearing impaired brothers-in-law. Thank you. We had the honor yesterday. Wow. I have our friends, Christy, Used to be Kramer, but now Christy Moore. Christy and Matthew Moore. I got to do their wedding on the beach in Port Aransas. Sherry was there. 
And Sherry helped me. One of the things I do when I do a wedding is I want to personalize it. And so I will, I will ask the couple to talk about each other and tell me about it. And then I'll ask the maid of honor, as I did here, and, uh, and the best man to tell me some things about the couple. And I will share. And one of the things Sherry shared with me about Christy, who you see and maybe don't even pay attention to. She never says a word out loud, but she stands up here and serves and signs often here in our church. She lives extraordinary love. Sherry said, a lot of people don't know over the course of the, what, I don't know, the last 10 years or so, Christy has fostered nine children of all ages. One now she ended up adopting. He's in his teenage years, right? No, he's older than that. Yeah, 35. Yeah, he just looks young. So, he, so I mean, he couldn't speak. He couldn't read. couldn't write. Right, Ken? And you see the way he communicates now because she taught him sign language. And all these ages, and the part that Sherry shared that just blew me away, is watch how just living a life of wisdom, witness just passes on through the generations, right? In this story, there was a dude named Saul hanging out. Don't you think some seeds were planted? Well, see, seeds were planted. Sherry said, over the course of those times, fostering, you know, when you love a child as a foster child and then they leave, that's really hard, right? And so some of those hard departures of a foster child, Christy would go to her, listen to me, teenage children and ask them, her biological children, she would ask them, should we just take a break for a little while? What'd you say, Sherry? She said, the children would say to her, no, mom, what if the kids need us? You don't ever hear her speak, but I'm telling her, her life of extraordinary love is impacting generations. One more that I share. Little Maylee Robinson. A few weeks ago, I asked permission if I could share this. I think it was after Easter sermon or the next week. And she took the time to walk all the way across the room, find me, and hand me this. She made that out of stickers. I'm blown away. I can't even color in the lines. She did it all perfectly and made it and gave me a picture of the resurrected Christ. I know it's such a simple thing, but it just, it just warmed my heart that day. And listen to me. You may have this vision of like the throne of heaven, or you might be someone who takes a picture of art and says, here's my picture of Jesus. Would you take it? And she's at nine years old showing us what it means to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. Isn't that awesome? Could it be that simple? What have you seen? What has he opened your eyes about? What has he set you free from? What purpose has he called you to? And, and share it and live increasingly, stumblingly along the way, a life of extraordinary love. Father God, that's our prayer, that we don't just talk about the book of Acts. I long for the same Holy Spirit that directed everything in those stories but continue to direct and awaken more and more in our own spiritual community. So we get the honor and the joy of telling people that we have seen the most incredible king that could ever be imagined, the life giver, the resurrected Jesus. And Father, help us by his strength alone, because it takes yours, we can't do it on earth, to live lives of extraordinary, breathtaking love. In the name of the resurrected Christ we pray. Amen.